Hey, this is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors at Mountain Park. And wherever you are listening to this from, whenever you're listening to this, we are privileged to be able to spend a few minutes with you. This week, we are in our third part of our Intentional Life series. And the heartbeat behind this whole series is a recognition that we are being formed spiritually and otherwise, whether we like it or not. The big question for all of us to answer is who or what is doing the forming and the shaping of our lives. There are intentional uh, forces at work all around us to shape us, to form us spiritually, socially, culturally, economically, all kinds of things. And we recognize as a church community together that um, if we are just passive in our spiritual life, the power and influence of those formational realities around us, Paul calls them uh, and gives them a distinct sort of classification in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all working together in unique ways, but in concert together to deform us from the image of God, the vision and purpose God has for our lives to deform us from that and reform us into their own image. And our call to you and to uh, ourselves this year is to become intentional with our spiritual life. That is the only way where we are going to be formed into the image of Christ. Today, Pastor Alex, our student ministries pastor here, at Mountain Park is going to be walking us through uh, Daniel's life and the most powerful formational reality of Daniel's life that allowed him to live uh, faithfully with God as an exile in Babylon well into the later years of his life. We hope that you are blessed by this, that you are encouraged by this, Have an amazing week. I will pass it on to Pastor Alex. So my wife and I had our house renovated and we had to put in a ceiling fan. My brother-in-law was like, nah, he knew what he was doing. He's like, you can do it. But he snickered under his breath for sure. And so my wife and I buy the ceiling fan and then we we, we start putting this together and trying to figure this out. And it takes us a you know, I don't know, three hours. It took a long time. And so we're coming to the end. We put in the support, I don't even know what you call it, harness thing, beam? Not beam, it's a string. My wife goes, it's a wire. My wife goes, okay, all you have to do is cut it, but cut the excess, not the support string. So, so in my brilliance, I go, what should I cut? The one that's sticking this way or the one that's really tight hanging that way? I'm like, okay. Well, that looks like a lot of of extra wire. So I cut the wire and my wife is holding it and she goes, what did you do? And I went, oh, come on. And I literally like went down the hallway and I'm like, 
thinking words that you can't say on a pulpit, and I'm freaking out. But those of you who are builders know that when you build, you want to think of the end. You want to start, but think of the end, what you're building towards. If I would have done that, I wouldn't have cut the weight-bearing string. So if you come to my house and look at the, don't sit directly under the fan, okay? (laughs) But how come when it comes to building, it's so easy for us to go, yes, not me, but for most of you, it's so easy to think of the end and then build backwards from there and say, okay, let's start here so we can end at this point where we want to be. So we don't often do that in our spiritual lives. One place I do see it more evident is in our parenting, right? We are a little bit more intentional about how we raise our kids in the way of the Lord. I often see this as a youth pastor. Parents will come to me when their kids are in difficult situations. They'll sit down with me. Oh, my, the worst situation. I had this lady stop me in a church I was at and said, hey, I need your help. I said, hi, my name's Alex. She said, yes, you're the youth pastor, right? Yep, yep. And I go, okay, yeah, I can help. Um, you need to call my son. I said, Whoa, uh, what's his name? And she's like, here's his number, call him. I'm like, ah, please, are you gonna tell him I'm calling? Well, I don't know if that's a good idea. I'm like, it's probably better than just me calling him. And so she obviously didn't. And so I make this call and I'm like, oh, I know this is gonna be terrible. So I call, I'm like, hello? And, and she, the kid's like, who is this? I'm like, uh, not off to a good start. I'm like, what? So my name is Alex, and I'm a pastor from a church in the area. He goes, how'd you get my number? I'm like, uh, your mom gave it to me? I'm like, that's just never a good answer for a teenager. <laughs> your mom gave me anything, a million dollars, doesn't matter. Teenager's gonna really be not impressed by that. And he goes, yeah, I'm fine, dude. Don't ever call me again. Click. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not a very good youth pastor. But the truth is, parents often come to me in in times of dire need, and they'll ask for help. How do we be intentional about raising our kids to serve? I'm worried about the way they're going. Well, let me tell you, it's it's like building. We have to start at the very beginning. We want to start earlier on so that we build them into faith. And And we see this in Daniel's life, right? Pastor Pam shared this last week in Daniel 6. See, often when we watch movies, if you've ever watched the kids' movies, um, we see Daniel, and he is, he is young, and he looks healthy, and then he gets thrown into the lion's den. Do you know that he's in his 70s at that point? He's in his, somewhere between 70 and 80. We need to depict him a little bit more aged in that moment. Like, he's, he's there, he's with a walker, like, he's not running to the lions, like, My mom would not be happy about that comment. She turned 70 this year, but he's literally in his later stage of life. And here's what we read about him in Daniel 6, 4 through 5. Then the other administrators and high officials began searching for fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, 
our only chance to find grounds of accusation, accusing Daniel, will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Another translation says, something to do with his God. He was, he at the late age of his life was defined by God. They knew that there was nothing in him that was anything but pure and he, they had to find something to do with their God because he was defined by serving God. Let's be honest. Would we not long for a church where our kids, that statement would be true of them when they're 70? Let's be honest. Do we not long to be men and women of God that that statement is made true of us when we are 70? How about now? But when you look at the life of Daniel, walk through his life. He's born into a, a prominent family. He then is living the life of luxury in the capital city of Judah. His family matters. And then in the 15th year, there's a king that comes and really destroys the city, tears down the temple of his God. And then we always think like, oh, and then he took him back to captivity. At 15 years old, he went from being a prominent family to nothing and being in change and walking 700 kilometers to Babylon. His life had been shredded. And he says that they, it, they put him into the equivalent of a university, three years of study, surrounded by other kids from Jerusalem and other kids from all over the territories that were exiles from their kingdom. This is, this is what Babylon did. They came in and a way to conquer you was to take your youngest and indoctrinate them, rename them in the culture of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, and then have them send them back. That was their way of ruling their kingdom, making the kids into little thems. Sound familiar? This is what they did. And Daniel went there and the first thing he does is they, he gets before and think, he just walked 700 kilometers and then he gets before a feast. And what does he do? Does he scarf it down? Does he say, you know what? I'm done with that. Look what just happened to my parents. Like we don't, we don't put this all in context. His dad would have been in the royal um, like families and so they would have been killed. He would have watched his parents be murdered. He would have watched his brothers, he would have watched some of his cousins be killed in battle. And now, feeling abandoned and alone, he loses his very name. He gets, his name is now given a, a Chaldean name, which is under their gods. Everything is stripped away from him. And what does he do? He stands up in that moment. How many of us would love to be like Daniel? How many of us would love to stand up in the pressure that would have been in that moment with really no power at all? He had very little power in that moment, but stay faithful to our God. Anyone? How about our kids? Man, how many of us would love to see in my family, in your family, in this church, see a Daniel generation rise up? 
One that is not compromised by the culture and the, and the current of everything else going away from God, but they stand up and they follow it. But here's the question, how do you do that? So many times parents come to me and say, help me. And I go, help me. I don't know the answers, but let's turn to scripture. Because I think if we want to build a Daniel generation in our families and in this church, if we want to be a Daniel generation, if we want our kids to rise up and be a Daniel generation, this church, we have to be willing to be a Josiah revival. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 34. We're gonna refer back to 2 Kings as well, 23. See, we have to look at this king that, that became king at the age of eight. Josiah was one of the kings in Judah, one of the many. And he had come to prominence and leadership because his, his father was so evil that his own servants killed them. His own servants killed his dad and made him king at eight years old. Anybody else got an eight-year-old? That's a scary place. <laughs> and here's what we read in, Dan, in 2 Kings 23, 25. At the end of the life of Josiah, here's what's written about him. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. You know what I never realized before? I was listening to this sermon and this pastor was telling all these stories and he referred to it. It's almost like he had just referred to it like it was something that he knew um, and studied long ago. He said, do you know how you build a Daniel generation? He said, you need a king like Josiah because Daniel was a child of the revival of Josiah. And I went, what? I never heard that before. So then I went to study and I looked over the years and I realized that Josiah was king when Daniel was born. That Josiah lived 11 years, or sorry, Daniel lived 11 years when Josiah was king. Meaning that when the revival of Josiah happened, Daniel was on the front row. Remember, he is in the royal family, so he's seeing what happened in prominence and he's realizing he's being formed by what God is doing in this revival, in this renewal. If we want to see a Daniel generation rise up, we have to be willing to follow what Josiah did to bring about renewal and revival. Hear me using those two words because the Pentecostals in the house are like, yeah, revival. And then those who are more conservative are like, yes, renewal. That's the right word. <laughs> so I want all of us, all of us to serve the Lord and to see God's outpouring. You put whatever term you want on it, but just that God would rise something up in us that we would seek the Lord in such a deep, deep way that something could be said of us that would be like this, neither before nor after 
Josiah, there was a king like him, not that built a great kingdom, not that was known for wealth or prominence, but that turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and all his soul and all his strength. Church, what does it look like if we could be a church that would turn to the Lord with all our heart, with all our strength and with all our soul? So let's look at what King Josiah did. He did three things. He did three things. So if you're taking notes, you can go ahead and put three things down. So here's what he did. First, he dedicated him to God. Go to 2 Chronicles 34, verse three. Now remember, he came to, to be the king in his eighth year. And then it says, during the eighth year of his reign. So he's 16, my math is right. Will he, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the, Lord, the God of his ancestor, David. It's interesting that he's defined by David and not his father and not one of the evil kings. But it's said that he is, he is known to seek the God of David. He made a decision at the age of 16 that he was going to follow the Lord. And it was from that decision that all of this revival happens. If we want to see God move in our lives, it begins with the decision that we will fall under the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ in our lives. The decision he made at the age of 16 brought fruit for many generations, but it had to start with his decision. Let me say this, church. Parents, directly. Your decision to live for the Lord matters, not just on Sundays, but how you live your life. Your kids are watching the shows you watch. They're watching what you listen to. They're watching how you handle good moments and bad moments. Can I say this? They need to see your broken moments. Our kids need to see us struggle in life. Why? Because they need to see us cling to the to the garments of our Jesus. Because they need to know it's not because my parents are great or they have everything together or the finances are fine, but it's because of the Savior they hold to. We need to dedicate ourselves to Christ Jesus in every single thing we do. They need to see you forgive those who maybe don't even ask for forgiveness. They need to see you ask for forgiveness when you've wronged someone. They need to see Christ in your every single day. And I say it to me, my kids need to see me when I'm angry, fall to my knees and ask for forgiveness. They need to see me when I do something right, give glory and praise to the Lord. They need to see me in blessing, praise the Lord. They need to see me in the hardest of situations, hold to Jesus Christ and him alone. And maybe you're here and you're like, I don't have kings. I don't have kids. You say, maybe that's not for me. No, it's absolutely for you. Because my kids need it. The kids that are here need to see those young adults serving Jesus. They need to see those who are like Daniel in their 70s or older and being faithful as ever to serve the Lord in all that they do. They need to see you 
seeking the Lord. But it starts, it starts with a decision. And I'm sorry, the church has misled so many people in the church where it said, it's just simply raise your hand and pray this prayer and then you're good, just go about your business. No, 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 I have no problem with people praying the sinner's prayer as a start of a dedication, a proclamation that I am giving my life to Jesus, but then that moment is not the definitive moment of your life. The rest of your life is following after Christ. It's following after him, it's like, Peter, when everybody else walks away and he said, and then Jesus turns to Peter and he says, are you guys going to walk away from me as well? And he, he says what I think we all need to burn into our soul, which is he, he says, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? Church, this is what we need. We need to be a church that has decided that we will follow Christ in the good times and in the bad times when we are doing well and our attitude is good and when we are poor and we are being greatly selfish, which I know a lot about. Josiah makes a decision to live for Jesus. This generation, the one that's growing up right now, in a culture that's swimming so hard against God, they need to see a people that is seeking the Lord. They need to see a people who have decided that Christ Jesus is everything and will live for him and him alone. Number two, he got serious. Let's turn uh, Second Chronicles 34, verse 33. There's a whole lot of it, but I'll, I'll summarize it in this verse. So Josiah removed all the detestable idols from the entire land of Israel and required everyone to worship the Lord, their God. And throughout the rest of his lifetime, they did not turn away from the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Parents, what a, could we make that statement of our kids? And for the rest of his lifetime, for the rest of your lifetime, your kids did not turn away from the Lord. Actually, turn with me, let's, let's look at verse two again. Um, in chapter 34 of Chronicles. I don't know if I gave you that one to you. Um, because I think it summarizes it really well. Or sorry, verse three. It was on the last point. You can put it up there. It says, in the 12th year. So he has now been dedicated to the Lord for, for four years. He's now 20 years old. It said, in the 12th year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines the Asherah poles and the carven idols and cast images. He went throughout the whole land. It, it actually says that it took him roughly six years 
to go through the whole land. And if you read in 2 Kings 22 and 23, it actually says that he went to the surrounding areas. He was so passionate that he went to the other tribes that he wasn't even the king over. And he tore them down. It said that he took the bones of the priests that were worshiping other gods and he burnt them to desecrate them because he was so fired up about sin and about the things that were misleading them away from God. No other king had ever done that. There had been renewals and there had been places torn down, but no other king tore down all of the Asherah poles it says, even in, in 2 Kings, it refers back to some of the things that were set up by King Solomon. Hundreds of years before, he went back all the way and he tore them down. And, and actually his grandfather had set up worship in the temple for other gods. He tore that down. He got very serious about the things that tore them away from the Lord. I think Hebrews puts it really well for us because if we're honest, you know, tearing down Asherah poles and idols and, you know, burning incense to, to idols is not maybe something that you and I do readily. Um, and if you do, stop it. Um, but, but this is not something that we can very easily be like, oh yes, we have, we have carven idols in our house. But what Hebrews actually shows us, the writer, he writes this in 12, 1, verse 2. Um, I'll let you turn there. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Why would he say this? And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Paul in this, in, or sorry, the writer of, of Hebrews in this is giving us a clear image. It's of a runner back in, in Roman times. And what they did was they used to run naked. Thank you that they changed that. Technology has helped us out with that. But... Um, and so what he's, what he's referring to is we fix our eyes. So the finish line is Jesus. What we're fixing our eyes on is Jesus. So we know where we're going, but it said what they couldn't do is have things on them. It would slow them down. It would hinder them from running. So he's tying into this image and he's saying, we need to throw off. And there's two things. Write this down because there's two things in your life that are holding you back from fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ and running the race that he's put out before you and for me. It's sin. There's sin in our lives. The church often on Sundays, we, we try to pretend like we don't have sin. We do have sin. And that's why Andrew continuously brings us to the place where we say we need to bring our lives before Christ and we need to repent of the sins that we, have, we are committing and we are okay with. There are sins in our life and we need to get serious about them like Josiah. We need to realize that the race that is set before us cannot be run when we are entangled. When we are entangled 
with sin. This is not condemnation for there is no condemnation in Christ. This is conviction. We need to run to the feet of Jesus Christ because he has already won the victory and we are righteous. We are not slaves to sin any longer. So would you ask the Holy Spirit what sin is in your life? Would you give him the authority to highlight it and then refine it out of your life? I have to ask that question of myself because we become very comfortable with the sin of, uh, that is comfortable within our culture, right? So one is sin. Two is hindrances. Guys, can I say that there's things in our lives that are just hindrances? There are things in our lives that are just simply robbing us of the fullness that God has, is doing in our lives. It's distracting us and it's hindering us. Think of it, the image of a sprinter ready to run and then they decide to put on the garments that they used to wear. Well, obviously that person is not gonna be able to run the way that they're meant to run. You know, people ask all the time, well, can I get away with that and still be saved? Is that really what is being said here? Is that our goal? Because if our goal is just to make it, then maybe, maybe, let's look at the list of things we're allowed to do and sin and be okay with. But if our goal is to see Christ glorified and our goal is to see a Daniel generation rise up, then we must respond as Josiah did, who was he got serious and he shredded all those things from the land. And until he was willing to tear that stuff down, the revival never came. The renewal didn't come. Church, if we are okay with the things that we hold on to, we will miss out. It's like the wild, the wild monkey that they would always be trying to catch and they could never actually catch him because their, their old ways of catching wildlife didn't work with these wild monkeys. Until someone noticed that they liked shiny things. And so all they had to do was tie a jar with a shiny thing in it to a tree that couldn't be broken. And the monkey walked up, put his hand in it. And when he had his hand with nothing in it, he could fit it in the jar. When he closed it around it, he couldn't get it out. But would the monkey let go? No. And so he got caught because he just sat there holding onto the thing that he thought was valuable, which actually had no value. What in our lives do we hold onto that has no value in the kingdom of God, but we hold onto it because we think it's dear, but we're trapped because we won't let go. We need to get serious about the things that hinder us. Yeah, maybe it's something simple, like the things you watch on Netflix or the Instagrams that you post or the things that you're, you're doing online or whatever. And you can say, well, that's not really sin or I don't feel conviction about that. Really? Is that the goal? Your feeling? My feeling? What we need is the Holy Spirit to lead us in conviction and strip that stuff away. There's a revivalist by the name of Leonard Ravenhill 
And I love what he wrote. He said, there's one thing we need above everything else. It's something we don't talk about these days. We need a mighty avalanche of conviction of sin. What are the things we watch? Are the things we watch and the things we listen to the things that crucified our Christ? If we want to see a Daniel generation rise up in our kids and in our church, we need to see people who are willing to follow the lead of Josiah and be serious, strip that stuff away so that we are hungry for God. It's not necessarily about what's right and what's wrong or what's sin and what's not. It's actually about us saying, I long for the Lord more than I want this. You know, that question often comes up. I get asked it a lot. Do you think you're a little intense? <laughs> Do you think maybe you're asking too much? And this actually reminds me of a story of a man by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was martyred um, and killed uh, by Hitler for being part of Valkyrie, um, an attempt on Hitler's life. And he was a pastor um, and he wrote The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together, which are, which are classics within the church. Um, and, and around 1933, right before all of the craziness was gonna go globally, um, he was invited to run a seminary and asked by some of his leaders if, if he would be willing to disciple these pastors. And so he actually said yes, and he, he took in just a handful, couple, couple hundred, a uh, couple dozen of pastors, and he began to disciple them. Well, word started spreading of what he would do. Let me give you an idea. Here's the morning, ready? How would you like to be part of this discipleship school? You'd wake up at seven. Those with kids are like, yeah, I'm in. Um, you'd wake up at seven. You would be then ushered into the breakfast hall. You would sit there in silence as you would read three psalms every morning. And then you would sit there in silence as someone would get up and lead a prayer for 30 minutes. Then you would have breakfast in silence. Then you would read some more scripture, New Testament, after. And then you would listen. Someone would get up, lead you in prayer. And then he would have a passage for the day. So that, that first part would take over an hour, um, which sounds like torture for me, an hour without talking. Um, my wife says amen. Um, anyways, and so he would, he would then give a passage of scripture, somewhere around 12 verses. And the first thing that they were to do as a Bible college, as ministering or soon to be ministers, they would be sent to their room and they would, he would say this. You are to hear from the Lord today on the passage that you speak. Do not leave your room for 45 minutes. If you do not hear from him speaking directly from the passage, do not leave your room until you do. Nothing matters more than that. And so word started spreading about this, this, 
strange and intense way of bringing about ministers. And, and so his friend comes and visits. And if you know Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer grew up in a quite wealthy family, a prominent family. His, one of his older brothers actually was part of the, um, with Einstein when they split the atom. And so he, he was from a very prominent family. And so he had quite influential friends. And so they come down and, and he's like, hey, we've heard about what you've done. And he starts watching and, and he, he just says, hey, Diedrich, this might be a little intense. Like you're just taking this too seriously. And then they were friends and they came from wealth. So they rowed down the river together. And so they went rowing, stop off at this point where they can oversee. And Andrews shared this story where they can see in the distance on a, on a aircraft field that these Nazi soldiers are training. And he said, what we need is something that's happening in the church that is more intense than what is happening in our culture. Church, we are sleeping. We are sleeping. And we think that posting stuff on Facebook and we think that calling out Trudeau or calling out the political leader that you, are, that you think is wrong is gonna be the answer. That's not the answer. Christ Jesus is the answer. It's the sin that is so entangling us. It's the things that are hindering us from running the race that Christ has laid before us. That is the thing that we need to be intense about. I'm not telling you not to vote. Vote the convictions of Christ Jesus. What I'm saying is that church, if we want to build a Daniel generation, then we must be a Josiah generation that yearns for renewal and revival, that is, that is gone and we, we get rid of the things that are cheap, that are distracting us, the counterfeits of this world that keep us from Christ. Will we do that? I don't say this pointing a finger at you. I say it pointing a finger at my heart because it's much easier to speak to people than allow the Christ and the Holy Spirit to rip those things out of our hearts. And we need it. He dedicates himself to God. He makes the decision to follow God. Then he gets serious and strips the things away that are ungodly. Number three, he humbles himself before the Lord. Second Kings 22, 19 says this. A prophet is speaking back. Interestingly, he called, the king called upon a woman prophet. Interesting point, right? Anyways. Um, you were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against the city and its people. That this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothes in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. Josiah in, in the, so it says in verse four, it says in, the, in his 26th year, so now he's gone from being 20, it took him about six years to tear out all the idols that they worshiped in Israel. 
Six years, that's a lot of idols. Um, and he goes on. Then it says that he then turned and began to give money to the temple to rebuild the temple. And as they're rebuilding the temple, what do they find? They find the word of the Lord, the Torah. And it says that the Torah comes to the king and the king hears the word of the Lord and he responds to it. He humbles himself under it. He tears his clothes because he mourns for what it is said of it and what they're doing. How do we humble ourselves before the Lord? Josiah shows us three ways. So he does this, first of all. He places himself under the word of God. I love Charles Spurgeon says this. If you want revival, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. Let me ask you, church. What role does scripture have in your life? Does it have authoritative law where, where it, it actually informs your life, where we go to it and we allow it to sit above us and inform us to be more like Christ? Or do we, do we approach it as equals and say, well, I feel that I don't understand that. So it doesn't really jive with how I feel. That is a bad way to approach scripture, guys. Scripture has to be authoritative. If we long to see a Daniel generation rise up, it's one that faces Scripture and allows it to speak to us. We do not speak to it and tell it what it means. It speaks to us and forms us to be like Christ. We have to allow that. Number two, he renews the covenant. He brings all the people together and he says this. He says, we are renewing the covenant here and he actually brings everyone, the whole, all of Israel comes before and he says, and he reads the Torah to them. That's a long service. If you're feeling it a bit edgy right now, that's a really long service. And he reads the Torah. They all are brought under scripture and then it says he renews the covenant. How do we do that now? What are ways that we renew the covenant? And I think Pastor Andrew um, has taught us to do it in a great way. A really simple thing that I try to do every day with my family. He just simply says this. Out loud, I bring my family under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I bring myself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We need to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and we are not. We need to acknowledge that he is the one who is Lord and he is actually over all our situations. Like Andrew said, in our office. Look, we don't, we don't make the right decisions because people are watching. We make the right decisions because it honors Christ. He's the Lord of our lives. We're honoring him in all that we do. Amen? And then thirdly, he says this. He calls them to celebrate the Passover says, King Josiah, this is verse 21 and 22 in Kings 23, or 2 Kings 23. King Josiah then issued the order to all the people. So to this point, he has teared down all the, all the places of worship of other idols. He has rebuilt the temple. He has brought the people 
before the word of the Lord. And now he has one more thing. He says this to the people. You must celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as required in this book of the covenant. Do you know that they had stopped celebrating the Passover? They had stopped as a nation bringing themselves. Why does that matter? Why does it matter about the Passover? Because what matters is that they are remembered and they remember the blood of the lamb that was slain. The blood that was slain for their rescue and freedom from exile. See, he brings them to a place where they do the Passover. And it actually says, I love it here. They said, there had not been a Passover celebration like this since the time when the judges ruled in Israel, nor throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah. What a party, read it. I mean, the butchers were busy that day. There's lots of different, different animals being chopped up. But it's, it's a celebration. It's a celebration of what God had done for them. That the blood was shed of the lamb, which brought about their freedom from slavery and brought them to the promised land where they sat there. He was saying, remember what was done for you. Remember the blood of the lamb. And so what we're gonna do now is we're gonna finish service by taking communion because we don't have to just talk about the Passover. I'm not inviting you to do the Passover every year. If you want to, I have some friends that do the Passover every year. That's a great tradition. We actually turn to the Last Supper where the perfect spotless lamb was shed. And we remember that his blood, that lamb, he died, not for a symbolic freedom from, from Egypt. He was brought so that we would be free from sin and condemnation and hell. He was the one who passed away. He died on the cross so that our sins would be forgiven. If we want to build a, a generation, a Daniel generation, then we must, we must be a people of the Lamb. We must be a people that takes the blood of the lamb seriously, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and we celebrate what he did, and we mourn the sin that we caused for the, for the cross that happened, and we actually turn to Christ, and we realize that his body was broken for our sins. He took upon the wrath of God for us, so that we could be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, but to righteousness because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if we wanna see a Daniel generation rise up, we must be the people of the Lamb. Why don't we stand to our feet? I'm gonna read from um, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. We're gonna realize why we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says this, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And therefore God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, 
separated from him by the evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I wonder if I could just invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. You know, we talked about being serious. One thing about honoring the cross of Jesus Christ is not cheapening sin. If you think sin is something small, then we don't understand the power of the cross and the price he paid for us. And so I want you to invite, invite you to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to illuminate in you any sin that you are so entrapped in. Holy Spirit, speak to us now. There is anything in us, any sin that we have done in rebellion against you, we bring it before your cross. And you know, if you hold that sin and you are in Christ, the good news is that Christ died so that you could walk in freedom from that sin, that you are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lay it at the cross. Jesus, we receive your forgiveness. Right now, just, to, just ask him for forgiveness for the sin that he's illuminated in your heart. Jesus, we receive your forgiveness. The victory you won on the cross when you overcame sin and death and you rose from the grave and are ascended in heaven. Let us take the, the bread. And when he invites us to take this, it's an invitation not to glorify our sin. It's an invitation to, to remember and celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ. His body was a real body. His death was a real death. And we remember the sacrifice he made. Let's partake of it together. Then in the same manner, he took the blood of Jesus, the cup. And it's interesting, you know, he says that um, when Josiah called them before, it said that he renewed the covenant. And Jesus, when he breaks the bread, it says that he says, this is a new covenant that's marked by my blood. And the interesting thing 
when we do this, we don't just do a symbolic exercise that the church should do. We make a proclamation. Do you remember the lamb of, the, of Exodus when they put the blood over the doorposts? We are putting the blood of the lamb, the true spotless lamb, not just over the doorposts of our homes, but on the doorposts of our heart. And we are not just making a proclamation in, in these walls. We are making a proclamation to one another, yes, but we are standing with every principality. We are standing in all of the spiritual world and we are making a declaration that the blood of Jesus Christ, that we place ourselves under the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? Let's go ahead and make that declaration now. Why don't you just bow your heads and take 30 seconds and thank Jesus for the cross. Thank him for the blood that was shed, for your sins, for my sins. Jesus, words cannot express our gratitude to you. But I do ask in this place that we would understand the depth of what you did on the cross. Jesus, that we would understand it in our everyday in our workplace, when we're driving, that we would, be, we would be gripped by the intensity of your love and your sacrifice. And that from that place, we would live. Jesus, we need you. We long to raise up a Daniel generation. Jesus, Help us learn the lessons of Josiah, who was a man who sought after you, who was a man who did not tolerate the things of this world, but pursued you, who was a man who led your people to your throne, not his own. Jesus, let us be people known for how we love Jesus, for the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen.